Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 111. The Rise of Islam. As I said last week, I'm delighted that for the first time the Myths and History of Greece and Rome has a guest presenter. I'd like to introduce Elias Belhadad, presenter of the History of Islam podcast. Of course, the overview presented here is just that, an overview. I really do recommend that you go to www.historyofislampodcast.blogspot.co.uk where you'll hear Elias go over these events and the further events in the history of Islam in significantly more detail. It really is an excellent podcast and well worth a listen. But now, here's Elias with the chapter. Roughly around the same time of Justinian's death, probably the greatest Byzantine emperor, miles and miles away from the imperial palace in Constantinople, out in the scorching sun, in a place that could only be described as a sea of sand, far away from the reaches of civilization, a young boy was born. Muhammad was born in 570 AD in a small town called Mecca. The city of Mecca is found in the west of the Arabian Peninsula. It is located in an arid gorge within a range of mountains that ran parallel to the coastline to the west of the Red Sea. These mountains are unbelievably bare, sharp, rocky crags with not a single scrap of soil to be found. I guess it was not much different from the rest of Arabia. It's a vast region, over 3 million kilometers squared. The Arabian Peninsula is bounded on all sides by water and sand. The Persian Gulf to the east, the Indian Ocean to the south, the Red Sea to the west, and the Syrian Desert, just as formidable a natural boundary to the north. Enveloped on all sides by these natural elements, the Arabs called their land Jaziratul Arab, the island of the Arabs. Muhammad ibn Abdullah was born into the prominent clan of the Beni Hashim. The Hashim clan was a sub-branch of the wider tribe known as the Quraysh, who controlled the holy sanctuary of Mecca and the cuboid building that sat in its center. Muhammad's early life was not much different from that of the average Arab, the average Meccan. Some of the few things that stand out were the deaths of his guardians. His father died before he could even see his son. His mother succumbed to illness and followed her husband to the grave when Muhammad was only six years old. The young orphan was then transferred into the custody of his paternal grandfather, who filled the void of his dead parents and would lovingly take care of him until his death, which was only a short two years later. This is why Muhammad has sometimes been referred to as the triple orphan. The responsibility of taking care of the eight-year-old went to one of Muhammad's uncles, a soft-spoken man renowned for his poetry, known to all as Abu Talib. Growing up an orphan, opportunities were very limited for Muhammad, but he tried to make do with what he had. For most of his early life, he worked the most menial job available for a free man in Mecca, a herder. 
The people of Mecca would hire people to take their herds of goats, camels, and sheep out to the surrounding lands in order to find pastures that could sustain their animals. The life of a herder in Mecca would have entailed things like camping out outside of town under the starry desert sky and leading herds around the desert seeking water and suitable grazing ground for days on end, weeks even, and then returning periodically back to Mecca in order to get paid and so that the owner of the herd could benefit from his animals. In the first 25 years of his life, Muhammad, despite an unspectacular existence, managed to gain a reputation for being a man of good character, an honest and trustworthy man. And soon enough, his reputation attracted the attention of a lady called Khadija. Khadija was a wealthy widow. She had been married twice in the past, and since the death of her second husband, she had managed to amass for herself a notable fortune, which she had further expanded through her commercial trading activities. Khadija's interest in Muhammad was initially strictly professional. As a woman, it had been custom for her to hire men to trade on her behalf. Khadija's profits had sometimes suffered in the past, or at least failed to hit their full potential. It seems that the people she had hired previously had found it, as you can imagine, quite easy to skim off the top. By hiring a man with a reputation like Muhammad's, Khadija could minimize the risk of any corruption or deceit that could harm her profits. Eventually, Khadija's interest developed into a romantic interest. She offered herself in marriage to Muhammad, and he accepted. At the time of their marriage, Muhammad was 25 years old, and Khadija was about 15 years his senior. Regardless of the age gap, it was an incredibly happy and fruitful marriage. Over the course of their matrimony, Khadija would bore Muhammad six children, two sons and four daughters. Sadly, both his sons died in infancy. Only his four daughters would survive to adulthood. By the time Muhammad was 40 years old, he had made it a habit of his to isolate himself from the rest of the world and live the life of a hermit for short periods of time, particularly during the months that the Arabs held sacred. Muhammad's self-imposed exile would often lead him to the caves that were dotted outside of Mecca, within the mountain ranges that surrounded the city, where he would sit deep in thought, engrossed in contemplation, deeply absorbed in meditation. In the year 610 AD, Muhammad readied himself for what was now for him a common ritual, his withdrawal from society. Muhammad would take with him some provisions, some dates, some milk, some water, and he would head out to the mountains a few miles northeast of Mecca, aiming for what had become his usual spot, a cave known as Hera. This year, however, Muhammad's secluded night set off a spark that would change the course of world history completely. While in the cave of Hera, Muhammad experienced a supernatural presence that spoke to him, informing him that he was in fact ordained to be a messenger of God. For the first two years, Muhammad remained relatively quiet about his experience. Initially, he had only confided in his beloved wife, Khadija. 
As time passed, he let a few more people that were close to him know of his new mission in life. His close friend Abu Bakr, his adopted sons Ali and Zaid, and a few other close friends and close members of his family. Soon enough, Muhammad gained the confidence to begin spreading his new monotheistic religion. His method was mainly through private invitations to people he thought would be open to accepting his message of one God. Muhammad's efforts in this initial three-year period were further augmented by a few of his devout followers, most notably Abu Bakr, whose efforts to spread Islam make him, after Muhammad, arguably the person who contributed most to the rise of the religion. Three years after Muhammad's supernatural experience, prompted by more revelations, in 613 AD, Muhammad went public with Islam. First, he invited his clan to accept the one God and reject all the idols they worshipped. He made little progress with them, so he turned towards the rest of Mecca. He climbed atop a hill called Safa, which was a short distance away from the Kaaba, where people congregated. And he addressed the entire Quraysh tribe, calling them all, name by name, clan by clan. He warned them of a fast-approaching day of judgment that would lead them to either eternal paradise or eternal hell. The initial impact of his general public proclamation was not much different from the impact of the invitation he extended towards his own clan, the Beni Hashim. Muhammad was simply dismissed by most people, the attitude of the Meccans is best reflected by Abu Lahab's reaction to Muhammad's speech from atop Safa. Abu Lahab was one of Muhammad's numerous uncles. Damn you! Is this why you gathered us? Abu Lahab exclaimed furiously, his face even more red than usual, a perfect picture of enraged annoyance, turning away with the rest of the crowd in a hurried rush back to whatever it was he was doing before his day was interrupted by Muhammad's shouts on Safa. Despite the on-surface failures of these two public stunts, Muhammad had managed to garner for himself a small yet somewhat significant following, which, through his efforts and the efforts of his loyal and devout followers, continued to slowly but surely expand. At first, the nobles of Mecca who formed the ruling class, the wealthiest and the most powerful, outside of verbal abuse, did very little to impede Muhammad or his followers. But this soon changed. Amongst Muhammad's followers, there was a significant number of slaves and freedmen who were subject to these very same nobles. They had no protection and their lives relied entirely on the upper class of the Quraysh that they served. Arabia was mostly a barren and desolate place. The physical conditions and the physical qualities of the Arabian Peninsula are what gave rise to its social conditions. In the harsh conditions of the desert, people had to band together in order to survive. This allowed for tribalism to emerge as a central primary pillar of life in Arabia. Arabia was a lawless land. It had no central authority that could govern or enforce justice, no central authority that could enforce the rule of law. In fact, there were no written laws. A wild west where everything goes. 
The only people that you can trust in times of anarchy are naturally those closest to you. So in Arabia, one's health and safety was owed entirely to one's tribe. There was no police force or army that you relied on to protect you. No, if you ever found yourself in danger, the only people who would aid you, protect you, prevent you from any harm that may befall you are those related to you, your blood, your family. And what is a tribe? A tribe is simply an extended family unit. The problem for Muhammad's followers, who were from the lower rungs of society, the slaves, the servants, the freedmen, was that by virtue of them being slaves or ex-slaves, they did not have a tribe, they did not have a clan that they could seek protection from. And so the first of Muhammad's followers who were to be prosecuted on a widespread basis were these people, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the weakest in Mecca. Muhammad was powerless, unable to intervene and help his followers unable to react in any way as he watched the most helpless of his followers be picked off one by one. Some of the wealthier Muslims, such as Abu Bakr, did as much as they could, utilizing the wealth that they amassed throughout their lives to buy Muslim slaves who were being tortured by their masters. But this was not enough, and Islam soon had its first martyrs, and it seemed that the numbers could only rise. Muhammad's solution to this predicament was to tell those amongst his followers who were at grave risk to migrate to Abyssinia. And so they did. There was an early small group who led the way and then a much larger group that followed in 616 AD. Six years after Muhammad received his first revelation and three years after Muhammad went public with the message of Islam. Quraysh tried to get these migrants back from the Negus, the ruler of Abyssinia, And they nearly did, but ultimately they came back home in failure. The Muslim migrants were granted permission by the Negus to live their lives safe on his lands. Soon after this, the Quraysh, mainly due to the lobbying of a leading noble, a prominent man known as Abu al-Hakam, collectively decided to impose a boycott on Muhammad's clan, the Bani Hashim. Abu al-Hakam was a staunch and early opponent of Islam. Described by many as the pharaoh of the Islamic religion, he was directly responsible for the deaths of many early followers of Muhammad. In fact, the first marcher in Islam had died at his hands. His real name was Amr. Abu al-Hakam was actually just his nickname. It was the name that he was most commonly known as in Mecca, and it meant the father of wisdom a testament to his intelligence and standing within the city. Due to his harsh opposition of Islam, the early followers of Muhammad were very quick to dub him the father of ignorance, the name that he is now known by in history, Abu Jahl. The boycott that he championed against Muhammad's clan for continuing to protect Muhammad and refusing to disown him aimed to essentially lay siege to the Hashim clan isolate them and starve them out. The boycott forbid the Quraysh from marrying with the Bani Hashim or even trading with them. On paper, the plan was perfect. The city of Mecca was built in a narrow, sterile valley which was surrounded by bare hills. The city's food supply was mostly in the form of imports. It seemed that it was really a matter of when 
rather than if the Hashim would give him. However, the Hashim clan had many sympathizers who violated the boycott whenever the opportunity arose to do so. The boycott lasted for over two years until it finally crumbled due to increased resistance from a significant proportion of the Quraysh who had simply had enough of seeing their own tribesmen suffer. The breakdown of the boycott was a great victory for Muhammad. Once it was lifted, the entirety of Mecca, the Hashim clan, Muhammad, his followers, all enjoyed a certain measure of peace. Abu Talib continued to provide protection for Muhammad, yet it didn't take much after this moment of happiness for calamity to strike again. In 619 AD, Muhammad's beloved wife, Khadija, passed away. They say lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Well, in that very same year, Muhammad's uncle and protector Abu Talib also passed away. Muhammad was grief-stricken. He dubbed the year the year of sorrow. He had lost the two people who had propped him up in life. He had lost the woman he loved, his closest confidant. She had never doubted him. She had been by his side since the very beginning. She was his first believer. And now she was gone. Abu Talib had been the father figure for the orphan Muhammad. And although Abu Talib did not embrace Muhammad's monotheistic message, he had never failed to stand by his nephew. He had never failed to defend his nephew and protect him, prevent him from harm and danger, despite the circumstances and their consequences. Now... He too was gone. The late Abu Talib had been the chief of the Bani Hashim. His successor to the chieftaincy was another one of Muhammad's uncles, a man known as Abu Lahab, the fiery one, a nickname reflecting his character and appearance. He was said to have had quite a pale complexion, and the Arabs would call people with such complexions red, because in the heat and the sun of Arabia, if you do not tan, then your complexion can only redden. Much unlike Abu Talib, Abu Lahab was not sympathetic to Muhammad's movement at all. In fact, he was the opposite. He was an early opponent. And Muhammad soon found himself in an extremely dangerous and vulnerable position. Fate had thrown Muhammad into a dark place. Without clan protection, Muhammad under the law of the Arabs would become a man whose blood was licit, a man who could be killed legally, without any consequence, without any fear of retribution or reprisal by his relatives. It would make Muhammad effectively a sitting duck, nothing more than a dead man walking. If Muhammad and his followers had not been flung by fate back into this state of vulnerability and insecurity, then the world today would be a very different place. If the unforeseen events that sprung Muhammad into action had not occurred, then he and his followers might perhaps have continued to lead a quiet, peaceful and unremarkable existence in the sands of Arabia, a backwater as far as any major civilization was concerned. Islam and the Muslims as a group would become lost in the crowd, forgotten, a footnote in history, nothing more. Their numbers would have dwindled and thinned out over the generations, and finally they would have disappeared like butter in a hot pan, just like so many 
other small sects throughout history. But the history of Islam tells us a much different story. Muhammad wasted no time and quickly began to search for a solution to his problem. Previously, when Muhammad approached people visiting Mecca in order to extend to them an invitation to Islam, that was all he would do. Preach to them the word of one God and then let them go on their merry way. The events of the past year had forced Muhammad to now tweak his methodology. In the post-Abu Talib world, Muhammad had to adapt. This time, when he approached non-Meccans, usually during the pilgrimage season, to join the religion of Islam, he included in his offer a requirement of a political nature. He would ask for their formal protection. Unfortunately, Muhammad had very little luck with this strategy, and his increasingly tenuous position in Mecca led him to take a mighty gamble. Muhammad gathered some provisions and set out with his adopted son Zayd towards the city of Ta'if. Ta'if was a cool, green hillside town. Uncharacteristic for Arabia, it was about 100 kilometers southeast of Mecca, and the two twin cities of Mecca and Ta'if had been rivals for a long time now. Muhammad stayed in Ta'if for 10 days, and in these 10 days, he went straight for the jugular. He approached the most important citizens, and he also made a specific effort with three brothers, who were the de facto leaders of the town. He tried to convince the three and extended to them the invitation to Islam, but to no avail. Muhammad was rejected by every face he turned to, and soon enough, the people of Ta'if had had enough of the Qurashi in their midst. They unleashed the rabble of the city on him, pelting him with rocks and stones until he was miles outside the city to let him know that he had overstayed his welcome. Muhammad returned to Mecca in a state of abject depression, but he did not despair, and soon enough he saw the light at the end of the tunnel. In 620 AD, Muhammad met a group of six travellers from a town called Yathrib, some 200 miles north of Mecca. He extended to them the invitation of Islam as he always did. The group, impressed by the doctrines of Islam and the beautiful verses of the Qur'an, accepted his message. They converted to Islam and went back home where they told more people of the new religion they had discovered, thus beginning the gradual development of Islam in Yathrib. The next year, five of the six men came back to Mecca in order to meet with Muhammad, and with them, they brought along seven new faces. This time, they pledged a formal allegiance to the Prophet Muhammad and went back to Yathrib with one of Muhammad's earliest devout followers, who was tasked with teaching them the religion of Islam and bringing more people into the fold. Islam spread in Yathrib like wildfire. The following year, in 622 AD, a delegation of over 70 individuals came to Mecca and swore allegiance to Muhammad. In addition to this, they swore to protect him and his followers if he migrated to their town. Muhammad accepted and the Hijrah began. Muhammad ordered all his followers in Mecca to begin their Hijrah, their flight, their migration to the city of Yathrib and his followers complied. A daily trickle of Muslim individuals and families soon began to slip away and leave Mecca, heading north to the oasis of Yathrib. All but one of the followers of Islam performed the migration in secrecy. The exception was a fiery convert named Omar. He had been passionate in his opposition to Islam until his conversion 
where he became an even more valuable asset to the Islamic movement. Before leaving Mecca, he stopped and addressed his people, issuing a general challenge, a duel to the death, to any man who wished to stop him from leaving the city. A challenge that apparently nobody wished to accept. And so, he migrated to Yathrib, publicly and unchallenged. The Hijrah is a significant turning point in the history of Islam. Its importance simply cannot be overstated. It marked the end of the Meccan era, a period of great weakness, and the beginning of the Medanese era, a period of hope. A new age was dawning, a new beginning. The Islamic community had gained its autonomy. Towards the end of 622 AD, the Prophet Muhammad and his close friend Abu Bakr entered the city of Yathrib. They were welcomed with great celebration and fanfare. Muhammad's first action upon entry was to build a masjid, a place of worship. The building was rough and bare, reflecting the poverty of the early Muslim community, but it did its job. The Prophet's mosque soon became the centre of all his activities. Its purpose was never exclusively reserved for prayer. It also served as a community centre, a town centre, the nucleus of the new Islamic community, a place where people would meet and congregate to discuss anything of importance to the Muslims and their livelihoods. The Prophet Muhammad had left the city of his birth as a despised prophet. He entered the city of his adoption as an honoured chief. Muhammad had been initially invited to serve as an arbitrator between the rival clans of Yathrib to settle their deadly internal disputes which had plagued the city for generations. His purpose was to maintain their unity and therefore heighten their security. However, as more and more of the inhabitants of Yathrib joined the new religion, Muhammad's position grew from strength to strength and the oasis slowly but surely began to completely shed its pagan ways. The name of the city even would transform and become known as al Madina. The name it is still known by today, simply the city. It did not take long at all for the new Islamic state to come into conflict with their old prosecutors in Mecca. The distance between the two polities was not that great at all, and the city of Medina was perfectly placed to intercept the commercial activities of the Quraysh. Soon enough, the migrants, economically uprooted, tired of the poverty that they were in, and hungry for a measure of vengeance, began to harass some of the small Meccan caravans passing by their new home. This led to the first decisive battle for the Muslims. In 624 AD, Muhammad set out with around 300 of his followers, aiming to intercept the summer caravan of the Quraysh. The summer caravan was one of the two largest caravans of its kind, overloaded with goods, vital for the commercial metropolis of Mecca. The Quraysh caught whiff of Muhammad's plans and set out with a force three times the size of Muhammad's. Luckily for them, the caravan managed to evade Muhammad's forces without their help. This development gave rise to some controversy. Some members of the Meccan army argued that their objectives had already been fulfilled, the caravan was safe, and there was no longer any need for the army to continue. The army was split into two camps, one side that wanted to fight, and another side that felt that there was simply no need. In the end, it was Abu Jahl's side that prevailed, the side that wanted to fight, 
Abu Jahl just simply brandished the coward card on anyone who expressed any kind of desire to go back home. And so it was decided. Fighting was the correct option. Fighting was the only option. The battle was a disaster for the pagans of Mecca. They were shamefully broken and routed by a force much smaller than theirs. Abu Jahl was killed in the fighting and along with him many other prominent nobles of the Quraysh. The battle marked a shift in the west of Arabia. Muhammad's followers were now a force to be reckoned with. Islam had won its first decisive military victory. The Quraysh went home and licked their wounds. The next year, they returned in greater strength, determined to put down Muhammad's rabble once and for all. The two sides met in the shadow of a mountain nearby Medina called Uhud. This time, Muhammad and his followers were soundly defeated. Muhammad himself was gravely injured and the Quraysh left the battlefield at the end of the day joyous, singing out cries of Muhammad is dead, Muhammad is dead. The Battle of Uhud had slowed down some of the momentum of Muhammad's movement, but it was not enough. Muhammad was still alive and kicking. The only way the Quraysh could rid themselves of their pest would be to uproot Muhammad from Medina completely. And so they made their preparations to do just that. In 627 AD, the Quraysh, under the leadership of a man known as Abu Sufyan, flexed their muscles and displayed their entire might. They set out with a force of around 10,000 men, composed of all their forces and that of their allies and clients. Abu Sufyan marched to Medina in order to capture it, but was forced to lay siege after the Meccans found to their surprise a massive trench blocking the accessible entry points to the city of Medina. The siege lasted less than a month. It is safe to say that sieges were not the forte of the Arabs in war. Abu Sufyan's fragilely assembled coalition, which had been promised easy pickings against a much smaller force of Muslims, soon became agitated and frustrated that their cavalry had been rendered obsolete. In addition to this, poor weather conditions had ravaged the camps of the pagan armies, further adding to their frustration and decreasing the levels of morale which were already pretty low. This episode allowed Muhammad to showcase his brilliance as a politician, and with a few secret negotiations and diplomatic moves, he added to the unrest of the pagan forces, and then he and his companions watched in delight, as what was a frightening force of 10,000 fragmented and left the shadow of his city beaten. The failure of the siege marked the beginning of Muhammad's political ascendancy as the premier power in Western Arabia and eventually in the entirety of the Arab Peninsula. The Meccans had exerted their utmost strength to capture Medina. Abu Sufyan had promised vast amounts of money in return for the cooperation of numerous neighbouring tribes and in the end he had come out with nothing. His failure to dislodge Muhammad from Medina had caused great waves of shock to ripple through the Arabian Peninsula. Mecca had no excuses. It had brought all that it had to the table and failed spectacularly. Meccan prestige plummeted. For Muhammad, on the other hand, things were on the up. His momentum was increasing. The snowball was at the top of the hill, gaining traction with every passing day. A short three years after the failed siege, the Islamic State was a completely different beast. It had managed to absorb everything around it. 
In 630 AD, Muhammad marched into the city of his birth, unopposed, and captured it without a fight. The subjugation of Quraysh left no tribe, no power in Arabia, prestigious enough or powerful enough to serve as a uniting force or even a rallying point to continue an organized conflict with the Muslims. Similar to how Vercingetorix's capture marked the end of Gallic resistance to Rome and the end of Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul. All resistance that followed soon crumbled and the majority of the Arabian Peninsula was completely subjugated. Muhammad did not live to witness the rest of his successes. He died in 632 AD, two years after the capture of Mecca. The mantle was passed to his ever-loyal friend, Abu Bakr, who carried out Muhammad's remaining plans to a T, exactly how he would have wished them to be. Upon succession, Abu Bakr was not faced with an easy job. The first thing that was thrown at him was a massive crisis. Almost the entire Arabian Peninsula had risen up in revolt. The Islamic Caliphate was almost brought to a halt, completely destroyed before it had even begun. Almost. With the help of his brilliant general Khalid ibn al-Walid, in just one year, the Arabs were all brought back into the fold. For the first time ever, Arabia was united under one central authority. Satisfied with his success, Abu Bakr turned his gaze back towards carrying out the plans that Muhammad had already laid out. In 633 AD, the ever-loyal friend Abu Bakr called for volunteers to assemble for the conquest of Jerusalem. Next time, we'll find out what happens when the forces of Islam meet the Byzantine army for the first time. So, thanks again to Elias Belhadad for his insight into the rise of Islam. Have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.